Sharp Talk, the regular podcast from eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with David Rennie. David Rennie is the Washington bureau chief of The Economist, and uh, for many years wrote the Lexington column, and before that, the Badger UK column at The Economist, based in London, and before that, the, the Charlemagne column, all about Europe, based in Brussels. Um, David, we're going to make this um, podcast all about trying to understand Donald Trump, especially from a, a European perspective, because Europeans, even after a year of Mr. Trump in the White House, don't really understand Donald Trump. They think they do, but they don't. You've been following him a lot in the past year or so. So what is the secret to knowing understanding Donald Trump? I think actually Europeans have an advantage over Americans in some ways, because one of the big things you find here is Americans are a bit puzzled as to whether he's on the right or the left, because when it comes to law and order and policing and building a wall and things, he's definitely of the, of the hard right. But they're then puzzled by the fact that he's not that fussed about shrinking the state. He's quite into generous pensions for Americans, his voters, his older voters. Uh, he's quite into subsidised health care for old people. So they're puzzled. And you'll, I'll go on kind of radio or TV shows here and people will say, well, maybe he's a bit of a Democrat. He's not. I think if you're a European... Actually, he's a pretty familiar policy mix. If you look at his policy mix, which is hostility to free trade, suspicion of globalization, uh, hostility to immigration, uh, anti-Muslim paranoia, law and order authoritarianism, uh, but generous benefits for our people, the kind of the Jean de Souche, you know, the blood and soil kind of people. It's basically pretty close to the agenda of the Front National or to Geert Wilders in the Netherlands or someone like uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. And the other mistake that uh, people here make is they say Donald Trump doesn't believe in very much because you have this ex intensely kind of polarized uh, politics with checklists of things that you are supposed to believe if you're a true red right. kind of conservative or, or red here. Yeah. And so, you know, people say, oh, but, you know, in the past, he wasn't actually, you know, in favor of, of giving everyone guns. He was a bit of a sort of lefty when it came to things like gay marriage or, or you know, abortion. Again, I think Europeans are better set up to understand where Donald Trump is coming from. It's not that he believes in kind of checklists of uh, pure conservative Reaganite kind of policies in the way that Republicans uh, are supposed to. But he does have a philosophical worldview which is very close to sort of European, souverainist, kind of blood and soil nationalism. Uh, if you listen to some of his really important foreign policy speeches uh, over his first year in office, the way that he talks about the nation state as the legitimate uh, good unit of government, that people are entitled to want a strong, sovereign, independent nation state that looks out for their interests above all, and his intense hostility to international organizations and his basic gut conviction that kind of cooperation and seeking kind of coalitions and uh, binding treaties is, you know, that's a game for chumps, that you need to be transactional and selfish and sharp-elbowed and aggressive. That's not so very different from Marine Le Pen or, or, or Viktor Orban in their sort of vision of nationalism. Okay, but the way you describe it therefore suggests there is, a, a, in effect, a, a Trump doctrine or Trump philosophy as opposed to him being a kind of blank sheet of paper who's just said anything at all just to get elected. He does certain, if you don't agree with him, he has certain views which actually resonate with a big chunk of, his, uh, of, the, of the voter base. Yeah, so then listeners may think, well, hang on, 
we heard all of that during the campaign and he sounded pretty frightening and some of the things he said sounded like he was going to immediately start a trade war you know with china or whatever um and actually the first year has been more conventional than people feared so then people might come back at uh, my theory of trump the sort of european style nationalist and say well actually his policy looks a lot more like the republicans we've known for many years and that is true in terms of you know at the end of 2017 you know he can claim that he's pulled off a very conventional conservative tax cuts and nato is still standing and he hasn't walked out of the un and all of those things are more or less conventional the problem is that the more that we see of him and i've interviewed him three times and you know every time i've spoken to him his gut instincts really are very different they really are sincerely kind of the grievance of an old declining kind of hegemon is his kind of view that america has been too generous for too long and it's time to just be a bit more selfish or a lot more selfish and a lot more sharp elbowed and if that has been held in check by some of his advisors and by the constraints of reality uh that doesn't mean that it won't come out you know later on in his presidency there are plenty of areas in which uh there's room for trade wars you know the, the idea of a trade war with china it hasn't happened so far because he he thought he would get their help on north korea could happen um the idea of really aggressive trade policy coming at the europeans well europe's just not been on his radar so far he's been very focused on nafta so the mexicans and the canadians but you know look at the bombardier deal you know if you want to yeah. see an example of of a president who's perfectly happy to sort of jam his thumb in the eye of of uh, people who are supposedly his allies ask the canadians and the and the british government about the the gigantic tariffs that have just been slapped on these aircraft made in in canada and the uh, northern ireland but there's a common view isn't there out there well not just in europe but also in in here in the united states that he um he's kept in check though by having some very bright people around him he did over the months the kind of the the more extreme players have been have been thrown out and they've been replaced by rather more serious grown-ups in his in his senior position in his administration so they're the uh, they're the ones actually trying to make sure he stays a more uh, straight line and in, in at least from a republican point of view so it is true that here in washington people have spent a year talking about kind of two factions vying for his uh kind of loyalty in the in the white house so you have the globalists uh people like his chief economic advisor Gary Cohn sometimes people talk about his daughter Ivanka Trump and her husband Jared Kushner as kind of leading lights in that faction uh the treasury secretary Steven Mnuchin and then you have the kind of the the, the nationalists so you're right that the most uh, high profile of those Steve Bannon uh left the White House uh, several months ago and is now on the outside there's still nationalists in the inner circle but i think having spent quite a bit of time this year in the west wing talking to his kind of people and also you know talking to him a couple of times um the reason that those factions are still both in existence in the white house and the reason that there hasn't been a kind of once and for all decision that trump is going to be a globalist president or a, a conventional president or a very unconventional nationalist president is that those two kind of worldviews represent authentically different parts of his kind of temperament of his character that he can be very transactional kind of deal maker who will cut any kind of deal and will make any kind of concession and doesn't really care about ideology but he does also deep down have this very kind of nationalist grievance kind of worldview that you know anyone who has a win-win proposition is kind of lying that everything is ultimately bleak right. and nasty and zero sum 
and he's held he's held those views since the 1980s you know you look at yeah. stuff he was saying in the 1980s he's he's held these views so it's more that circumstances have kept both of those worldviews kind of in play because there have been areas in which he could be convinced that there was a transactional advantage in in not blowing up the system but you know there are other ways in which i think you could see some pretty nasty sides of him coming out and you know britain uh, is a classic example of this there are still conservative politicians who fly out here to washington and come and talk to conservative think tanks and say we're going to do a fantastic free trade deal with donald trump and republicans who basically don't know anything about how the european union works the only thing they know is that they saw Barack Obama saying that Britain would be at the back of the queue. Yeah. And so whatever Barack Obama said, they want to do the opposite. the opposite. And so they think, well, this is, this is, you know, this is the Boston Tea Party. This is liberty. This is freedom. This is, you know, Margaret Thatcher. Europeans are sort of sclerotic and socialistic. And so this is marvelous. We'll do a free trade deal with the Brits. But then if you ask them what that might involve, they say, well, this is going to be brilliant because the Brits will... They don't care about, you know, chlorinated chicken and hormones in beef and so in effect, you're financial regulation. They're just like us. But actually, I think if you tested the proposition that there's an easy trade deal where Britain becomes sort of the 51st state of America and accepts everything that Americans like about, you know, industrial food or very light touch financial regulation, I think the wheels would fall off that incredibly fast because actually Europeans... The Britain, the British public opinion is not nearly as American as as, as Americans here think. So therefore, the UK, uh, US, so-called special relationship is is even less uh, of a reality than it has been in the past under the Trump administration, where the Brits are in effect uh, kidding themselves that we have a special relationship with the United States. They do have a special relationship, but I mean, I would say to British politicians who dream of a kind of you know a perfect trade deal that gives them everything they want, what part of America first don't you understand? I mean, this is not a president elected to do favours to anyone, right, right. even the Brits. He's very, very unsentimental about foreigners. And the other thing that is going to cause huge trouble for the Brits very quickly, I think, is that there's an iron triangle, that any concession that you can imagine British conservatives doing to get a trade deal with America, so, you know, OK, bring us your chlorinated chicken or whatever, that will then hurt their chances of doing a trade deal with Europe. Yeah. Because if you're a European politician who's not that keen on the British anyway, and you see them letting in American chlorinated chicken and hormone beef and dangerous financial products, I mean, the, the easiest thing in the world is to say, didn't we tell you Britain is a 51st state, it's treacherous, it's a Trojan horse, it's letting in all these dangerous American things we don't want. Let's shut Britain out of the single market. And at that point, whoever is British Prime Minister is going to have to choose between this fairly illusory trade deal with Donald Trump and the real trade with Europe and that, I don't think that iron triangle can be can be broken and I don't think anyone here in Washington's focused on it and I don't think anyone in London seems to be having an honest discussion about it. So let's finish off maybe the, this uh, conversation David uh, by talking about Mr Trump's potential vulnerabilities both in terms of the midterm elections next year uh, where he may lose control uh, certain levers of power in, in the Congress and also the famous Mueller investigation. First of all, how, how strong is a, is a fight back by the Democrats uh, going to emerge in the course of next year, 2018? Well, clearly, on paper, Donald Trump is very vulnerable. You know, he's historically unpopular. He's, he's not added any new voters after squeaking out his, you know, remarkable historic victory in 2016. You know, you can't look at America and say there are some new Trump supporters. But his base is remarkably durable and resilient. I think what we've learned about Donald Trump, and this is the problem the Democrats face, is Donald Trump has understood, perhaps more clearly than anyone else, 
that politics nowadays isn't about what you do, uh, it's about who you're against. And that's very potent. It's pretty bleak, right. but that's what keeps them happy. So when people like me, you know, policy wonks and the economists say, but hang on, he hasn't built the wall on the Mexican border and the coal mining jobs haven't come back. So what about those broken promises? That's focusing on what he said he would do. But it turns out that who you're against right. is, is what they want. So the Democrats, they have to craft a message that deals with that world of kind of tribal hatreds. And it's very hard for them because their temptation is to say, didn't we tell you Donald Trump is awful? Look how awful he is. He's not really on your side. He's a con man. And you, American voters who liked him, you're the victims of that con man. But the problem for Democrats is that that's a trap because no one likes being told that they're the kind of victims of a con man and that yeah. they were duped and that they're chumps. So they have to come up with a kind of a more optimistic kind of policy message about jobs and, and economics. The other thing we'll see uh, in 2018 and heading into 2020 in the next presidential election is a gigantic fight between a very, very large number of Democrats, all of whom think that they have a chance of taking Donald Trump on in the next presidential election because you've got to figure that to be the opposite of Donald Trump is going to be a good thing to be in 2020 because he's very unpopular. But we don't know which opposite. Is it you know, younger and more multicultural? Is it someone who's more competent? Is it someone who's less angry? You know, is it someone who's still an outsider? More but, radical, you yeah. know, yeah. is it someone who's way to his left? So you're going to see a lot of kind of chaos. The Democrats, they're in that weird position of a political party which lost an important election but does not yet agree internally about why they lost it. And that's kind of a dangerous place to be. In terms of threats to Donald Trump from the Russia investigation, that's real. Uh, that's really real. Uh, his his supporters are being prepared for the fact that it's all untrue and it's all lies, and that uh, you know no, they shouldn't believe a word of it. And Donald Trump, you know, could pardon everyone in sight and fire the special counsel uh, Robert Mueller, and maybe that will do it. But there is, you know, uh, there is an investigation chewing its way through his administration. Uh, Historically, special counsels can tie up a White House and have a kind of chilling effect on an administration. Um, if people imagine there's going to be a neat and tidy law and order end to that story, they're going to be disappointed. I think it's going to be political. I think that everyone realizes that this is basically a political fight. So it will be decided by who controls Congress in the autumn of 2018. We have midterm elections in November 2018. Donald Trump has been told uh, by his close advisors, because they've told me, they've told him, that he needs to focus on those congressional elections in November 2018, because if Democrats take control of Congress, then five minutes after they take control of Congress, they'll vote to impeach him. Right. So it's the start of the year, so time for predictions. Um, will uh, Donald Trump survive a first term? Uh, and secondly, will he actually win re-election for a second term? There's so many unknowns. I mean, the economy is in reasonably good shape and that tradition has been pretty good for uh, incumbent presidents. That said, if you want a big prediction for 2018, I'm very, very anxious about Asia. I'm very anxious that once Donald Trump decides that China is not going to sort out North Korea for him, that he then comes roaring back with a very hostile uh, trade agenda. I think once North Korea demonstrates that it has all the bombs and missiles that it thinks it needs to uh, have a kind of credible threat to attack America at any time, then America moves to a kind of posture of deterring and containing a nuclear North Korea. That involves doing a ton of things that the Chinese will hate, extra American aircraft carriers, extra American missile defenses. So this slightly weird relationship 
between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping that's been quite good for the first year, I think could get very, very rocky next year. So I'm the possibility of a kind of foreign policy shock, uh, I think is really real. And if you talk to people inside the machine, they're very, very anxious about it. So he will survive a a first term, but maybe not with Benedicta for a second term. You'd have to bet at the moment, but I mean, this is this is uh, this has been a very humbling year for uh, for people like me who are paid to make predictions. Okay, <laughs> dude, Willie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.